Part Two of *The Sign of the Broken Sword* by G. K. Chesterton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two. The next evidence, said Father Brown, took some time to find, but it will not take long to tell. I found at last in an almshouse down in the Lincolnshire Fens an old soldier who not only was wounded at the Black River but had actually knelt beside the colonel of the regiment when he died. This latter was a certain Colonel Clancy, a big bull of an Irishman, and it would seem that he died almost as much of rage as of bullets. He, at any rate, was not responsible for that ridiculous raid. It must have been imposed on him by the general. His last edifying words, according to my informant, were these. And there goes the damned old donkey with the end of his sword knocked off. <laughs> I wish it was his head. You will remark that everyone seems to have noticed this detail about the broken sword-blade, though most people regard it somewhat more reverently than did the late Colonel Clancy. And now for the third fragment. Their path through the woodland began to go upward, and the speaker paused a little for breath before he went on. Then he continued in the same business-like tone. Only a month or two ago a certain Brazilian official died in England, having quarreled with Olivier and left his country. He was a well-known figure both here and on the continent, a Spaniard named Espado. I knew him myself, a yellow-faced old dandy with a hooked nose. For various private reasons I had permission to see the documents he had left. He was a Catholic, of course, and I had been with him towards the end. There was nothing of his that lit up any corner of the Black St. Clair business, except five or six common exercise books filled with the diary of some English soldier. I can only suppose that it was found by the Brazilians on one of those that fell. Anyhow, it stopped abruptly the night before the battle. But the account of that last day in the poor fellow's life was certainly worth reading. I have it on me, but it's too dark to read it here, and I will give you a resume. The first part of that entry is full of jokes, evidently flung about among the men, about somebody called the Vulture. It does not seem as if this person, whoever he was, was one of themselves, nor even an Englishman, Neither is he exactly spoken of as one of the enemy. It sounds rather as if he were some local go-between and non-combatant, perhaps a guide or a journalist. He has been closeted with old Colonel Clancy, but is more often seen talking to the Major. Indeed, the Major is somewhat prominent in this soldier's narrative. A lean, dark-haired man, apparently of the name of Murray, a North Ireland man, and a Puritan. There are continual jests about the contrast between the Ulsterman's austerity and the conviviality of Colonel Clancy. There is also some joke about the vulture wearing bright-colored clothes. But all these levities are scattered by what may well be called the note of a bugle. Behind the English camp, and almost parallel to the river, ran one of the few great roads of that district— Westward the road curved round toward the river, which it crossed by the bridge before mentioned. To the east, 
the road swept backwards into the wilds, and some two miles along it was the next English outpost. From this direction there came along the road that evening a glitter and clatter of light cavalry, in which even the simple diarist could recognize with astonishment the general and his staff. He rode the great white horse, which you may have seen so often in illustrated papers and academy pictures, and you may be sure that the salute they gave him was not merely ceremonial. He, at least, wasted no time in ceremony, but springing from the saddle immediately, mixed with the group of officers, and fell into emphatic, though confidential, speech. What struck our friend the diarist most was his special disposition to discuss matters with Major Murray, but indeed such a selection, so long as it was not marked, was in no way unnatural. The two men were made for sympathy. They were men who read their Bibles. They were both the old evangelical type of officer. However this may be, it is certain that when the general mounted again, he was still talking earnestly to Murray, and that as he walked his horse slowly down the road toward the river, the tall Ulsterman still walked by his bridle-rein in earnest debate. The soldiers watched the two until they vanished behind a clump of trees, where the road turned towards the river. The colonel had gone back to his tent, and the men to their pickets. The man with the diary lingered for another four minutes and saw a marvellous sight. The great white horse, which had marched slowly down the road, as it had marched in so many processions, flew back, galloping up the road towards them, as if it were mad to win a race. At first they thought it had run away with the man on its back, but they soon saw that the general, a fine rider, was himself urging it to full speed. Horse and man swept up to them like a whirlwind, and then, reining up the reeling charger, the general turned on them a face like flame, and called for the colonel like the trumpet that wakes the dead. I conceive that all the earthquake events of that catastrophe tumbled on top of each other rather like lumber in the minds of men such as our friend with the diary. With the dazed excitement of a dream, they found themselves falling, literally falling, into their ranks, and learned that an attack was to be led at once across the river. The general and the major, it was said, had found out something at the bridge, and there was only just time to strike for life. The major had gone back at once to call up the reserve along the road behind. It was doubtful if even with that prompt appeal help could reach them in time. But they must pass the stream that night, and seize the heights by morning. It is with the very stir and throb of that romantic nocturnal march that the diary suddenly ends. Father Brown had mounted ahead for the woodland path grew smaller, steeper, and more twisted, till they felt as if they were ascending a winding staircase. The priest's voice came from above out of the darkness. There was one other little and enormous thing. When the general urged them to their chivalric charge, he half drew his sword from the scabbard, and then, as if ashamed of such melodrama, thrust it back again. The sword again, you see. A half-light broke through the network of boughs above them, flinging the ghost of a net about their feet, for they were mounting again to that faint luminosity of the naked night. Flambeau felt truth all round him as an atmosphere, 
but not as an idea. He answered with bewildered brain. Well, what's the matter with the sword? Officers generally have swords, don't they? They are not often mentioned in modern war, said the other dispassionately. But in this affair, one falls over the blessed sword everywhere. Well, what is there in that? growled Flambeau. It was a twopence colored sort of incident, the old man's blade breaking in his last battle. Any one might bet the papers would get hold of it, as they have. On all these tombs and things it's shown broken at the point. I hope you haven't dragged me through this polar expedition, merely because two men with an eye for a picture saw St. Clair's broken sword. No, cried Father Brown, with a sharp voice like a pistol-shot. But who saw his unbroken sword? What do you mean? cried the other, and stood still under the stars. They had come abruptly out of the gray gates of the wood. I say, who saw his unbroken sword? repeated Father Brown obstinately. Not the writer of the diary, anyhow. The general sheathed it in time. Flambeau looked about him in the moonlight, as a man struck blind might look in the sun, and his friend went on for the first time with eagerness. Flambeau, he cried, I cannot prove it, even after hunting through the tombs, but I am sure of it. Let me add just one more tiny fact that tips the whole thing over. The colonel, by a strange chance, was one of the first struck by a bullet. He was struck long before the troops came to close quarters. But he saw St. Clair's sword broken. Why was it broken? How was it broken? My friend, it was broken before the battle. Oh, said his friend with a sort of forlorn jocularity, and pray where is the other piece? I can tell you, said the priest promptly, in the northeast corner of the cemetery of the Protestant Cathedral at Belfast. Indeed, inquired the other, have you looked for it? I couldn't, replied Brown with frank regret. There's a great marble monument on top of it, a monument to the heroic Major Murray, who fell fighting gloriously at the famous Battle of the Black River. Flambeau seemed suddenly galvanized into existence. You mean, he cried hoarsely, that General St. Clair hated Murray and murdered him on the field of battle because— You are still full of good and pure thoughts, said the other. It was worse than that. Well, said the large man, my stock of evil imagination is used up. The priest seemed really doubtful where to begin, and at last he said again, Where would a wise man hide a leaf? In the forest. The other did not answer. If there were no forest, he would make a forest, and if he wished to hide a dead leaf, he would make a dead forest. There was still no reply, and the priest added still more mildly and quietly, and if a man had to hide a dead body, he would make a field of dead bodies to hide it in. Flambeau began to stamp forward with an intolerance of delay in time or space, but Father Brown went on as if he were continuing the last sentence. Sir Arthur St. Clair, as I have already said, was a man who read his Bible. That was what was the matter with him. 
When will people understand that it is useless for a man to read his Bible, unless he also reads everybody else's Bible? A printer reads a Bible for misprints. A Mormon reads his Bible to find polygamy. A Christian scientist reads his and finds we have no arms and legs. St. Clair was an old Anglo-Indian Protestant soldier. Now, just think what that might mean, and for heaven's sake, don't cant about it. It might mean a man physically formidable, living under a tropic sun in an Oriental society, and soaking himself without sense or guidance in an Oriental book. Of course he read the Old Testament rather than the New. Of course he found in the Old Testament anything that he wanted. Lust, tyranny, treason. Oh, I dare say he was honest, as you call it. But what is the good of a man being honest in his worship of dishonesty? In each of the hot and secret countries to which the man went, he kept a harem. He tortured witnesses. He amassed shameful gold, but certainly he would have said with steady eyes that he did it to the glory of the Lord. My own theology is sufficiently expressed by asking, Which Lord? Anyhow, there is this about such evil, that it opens door after door in hell, and always into smaller and smaller chambers. This is the real case against crime, that a man does not become wilder and wilder, but only meaner and meaner. St. Clair was soon suffocated by the difficulties of bribery and blackmail, and needed more and more cash, and by the time of the Battle of the Black River he had fallen from world to world to that place which Dante makes the lowest floor of the universe. "'What do you mean?' asked his friend again. "'I mean that,' retorted the cleric, and suddenly pointed to a puddle sealed with ice that shone in the moon. Do you remember whom Dante put in the last circle of ice? The traitors, said Flambeau, and shuddered. As he looked around at the inhuman landscape of trees, with taunting and almost obscene outlines, he could almost fancy he was Dante, and the priest, with the rivulet of a voice, was indeed a Virgil leading him through a land of eternal sins. The voice went on. Olivier, as you know, was quixotic, and would not permit a secret service in spies. The thing, however, was done, like many other things, behind his back. It was managed by my old friend Espado. He was the bright-clad fop, whose hooked nose got him called the vulture. Posing as a sort of philanthropist at the front, he felt his way through the English army, and at last got his fingers on its one corrupt man, please God, and that man at the top. St. Clair was in foul need of money and mountains of it. The discredited family doctor was threatening those extraordinary exposures that afterwards began and were broken off, tales of monstrous and prehistoric things in Park Lane, things done by an English evangelist, that smelt like human sacrifice and hordes of slaves. Money was wanted, too, for his daughter's dowry, for to him the fame of wealth was as sweet as wealth itself. He snapped the last thread, whispered the word to Brazil, and wealth poured in from the enemies of England. 
but another man had talked to Espado the Vulture as well as he. Somehow the dark, grim young major from Ulster had guessed the hideous truth, and when they walked slowly together down that road towards the bridge, Murray was telling the general that he must resign instantly, or be court-martialed and shot. The general temporized with him till they came to the fringe of tropic trees by the bridge, and there, by the singing river and the sunlit palms, for I can see the picture, the general drew his saber and plunged it through the body of the major. The wintry road curved over a ridge in cutting frost with cruel black shapes of bush and thicket, but Flambeau fancied that he saw beyond it faintly the edge of an aureole that was not starlight and moonlight, but some fire such as is made by men. He watched it as the tale drew to its close. St. Clair was a hell-hound, but he was a hound of breed. Never, I'll swear, was he so lucid and so strong as when poor Murray lay a cold lump at his feet. Never in all his triumphs, as Captain Keith said truly, was the great man so great as he was in this last world-despised defeat. He looked coolly at his weapon to wipe off the blood. He saw the point he had planted between his victim's shoulders had broken off in the body. He saw, quite calmly, as through a club window-pane, all that must follow. He saw that men must find the unaccountable corpse, must extract the unaccountable sword-point, must notice the unaccountable broken sword, or absence of sword. He had killed, but not silenced. But his imperious intellect rose against the facer. There was one way yet. He could make the corpse less unaccountable. He could create a hill of corpses to cover this one. In twenty minutes, eight hundred English soldiers were marching down to their death. The warmer glow behind the black winter wood grew richer and brighter, and Flambeau strode on to reach it. Father Brown also quickened his stride, but he seemed merely absorbed in his tale. Such was the valor of that English thousand, and such the genius of their commander, that if they had at once attacked the hill, even their mad march might have met some luck. But the evil mind that played with them like pawns had other aims and reasons. They must remain in the marshes by the bridge at least till British corpses could be a common sight there. Then, for the last grand scene, the silver-haired soldier-saint would give up his shattered sword to save further slaughter. Oh, it was well organized for an impromptu. But I think, I cannot prove, I think that it was while they stuck there in the bloody mire that someone doubted and someone guessed. He was mute a moment, and then said, There is a voice from nowhere that tells me the man who guessed was the lover, the man to wed the old man's child. But what about Olivier and the hanging? asked Flambeau. Olivier, partly from chivalry, partly from policy, seldom encumbered his march with captives, explained the narrator. He released everybody in most cases. He released everybody in this case. "'Everybody but the general,' said the tall man. 
"'Everybody,' said the priest. Flambeau knit his black brows. "'I don't grasp it all yet,' he said. "'There is another picture, Flambeau,' said Brown, in his more mystical undertone. "'I can't prove it, but I can do more. I can see it. "'There is a camp breaking up on the bare, torrid hills at morning, "'and Brazilian uniforms massed in blocks and columns to march. "'There is the red shirt and long black beard of Olivier, "'which blows as he stands, his broad-brimmed hat in his hand.' He is saying farewell to the great enemy he is setting free, the simple, snow-headed English veteran, who thanks him in the name of his men. The English remnant stand behind at attention. Besides them are stores and vehicles for the retreat. The drums roll. The Brazilians are moving. The English are like statues. So they abide till the last hum and flash of the enemy have faded from the tropic horizon. Then they alter their postures all at once, like dead men coming to life. They turn their fifty faces upon the general, faces not to be forgotten. Flambeau gave a great jump. "'Ah!' he cried. "'You don't mean—' "'Yes,' said Father Brown, in a deep, moving voice. "'It was an English hand that put the rope round St. Clair's neck.' I believe the hand that put the ring on his daughter's finger. They were English hands that dragged him up to the tree of shame, the hands of men that had adored him and followed him to victory. And there were English souls, God pardon and endure us all, who stared at him swinging in that foreign sun on the green gallows of palm, and prayed in their hatred that he might drop off it into hell. As the two topped the ridge, there burst on them the strong scarlet light of a red-curtained English inn. It stood sideways in the road, as if standing aside in the amplitude of hospitality. Its three doors stood open with invitation, and even where they stood they could hear the hum and laughter of humanity happy for a night. "'I need not tell you more,' said Father Brown. They tried him in the wilderness and destroyed him, and then, for the honor of England and of his daughter, they took an oath to seal up forever the story of the traitor's purse and the assassin's sword-blade. Perhaps, heaven help them, they tried to forget it. Let us try to forget it anyhow. Here is our inn. With all my heart, said Flambeau, and was just striding into the bright noisy bar, when he stepped back and almost fell on the road. "'Look there, in the devil's name!' he cried, and pointed rigidly at the square wooden sign that overhung the road. It showed dimly the crude shape of a sabre-hilt and a shortened blade, and was inscribed in false archaic lettering, the sign of the broken sword. "'Were you not prepared?' asked Father Brown gently. He is the god of this country. Half the inns and parks and streets are named after him and his story. I thought we had done with the leper, cried Flambeau, and spat on the road. You will never have done with him in England, said the priest, looking down, while brass is strong and stone abides. His marble statues will erect the souls of proud, innocent boys for centuries. 
His village tomb will smell of loyalty as of lilies. Millions who never knew him shall love him like a father, the man whom the last few that knew him dealt with like dung. He shall be a saint, and the truth shall never be told of him, because I have made up my mind at last. There is so much good and evil in breaking secrets that I put my conduct to a test. All these newspapers will perish. The anti-Brazil boom is over. Olivier is already honored everywhere. But I told myself that if anywhere, by name, in metal or marble that will endure like the pyramids, Colonel Clancy or Captain Keith or President Olivier or any innocent man was wrongly blamed, then I would speak. If it were only that St. Clair was wrongly praised, I would be silent. And I will. They plunged into the red-curtained tavern, which was not only cozy, but even luxurious inside. On a table stood a silver model of the tomb of St. Clair, the silver head bowed, the silver sword broken. On the walls were colored photographs of the same scene, and of the system of wagonettes that took tourists to see it. They sat down on the comfortable padded benches. "'Come, it's cold,' cried Father Brown. "'Let us have some wine or beer.' "'Or brandy,' said Flambeau. End of Part 2 End of The Sign of the Broken Sword by G. K. Chesterton This story read by Phil Chenevere